Uh, we're going to dive into Romans chapter 16 today. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Romans 16. We have uh, two Sundays left in Romans, and then we will be done for another 14 years. So we'll see how that goes. Um, all right. So a little bit about today. Uh, just the, the broad overview of Romans to catch you up. Chapters 1 through 8 have been Paul laying theological foundations. These are the gospel truths that uh, anchor us deep in what God has done for us through Jesus. And, and Paul's worked really hard over the course of Romans to like, push every boundary of what if. Like, how do we know that we are saved? And Romans was written to help us understand what justification is, what sanctification is, what it means to be filled by the Spirit, uh, how we are redeemed, what propitiation is, all of these words that form the foundation of our faith, Paul's writing about them in this letter to remind this Roman church of the significance and substance of the gospel. Then chapters 9 through 11 uh, are Paul taking a look at this issue of the sovereignty of God, and he uses Israel as a picture of helping us understand human free will and God's sovereign direction, and how do both of those things exist and the answer that he gives is, yes, they do exist. And it's not a clear God's sovereign and therefore we have no free will. And it's not a we have free will, therefore God has no idea what's going to happen in the future. It's this beautiful, difficult marriage of both of those things existing. And Romans 9 through 11 are, are there to put that on full display. And starting in chapter 12 and moving to the end of the letter... Paul actually makes the effort to take real life issues and say, okay, we're living out the gospel. What does it look like for us to do this in life together? To pour out our spiritual gifts and minister to each other, uh, to be under a government and in a community uh, that we are responsible for and a part of, even as there are governing authorities, whether they are righteous or not, how do we operate in that environment? And then in chapter 14, he starts to work out, okay, what do you do when you're in community with people that you don't agree with? And he's not talking about the Romans chapter 1 through 8 things where we disagree on whether Jesus is God or we disagree on whether the scriptures are the word of God. Those issues, he's actually worked on settling them. These are more the things of like people that want to eat kosher versus people that don't want to eat kosher. People that want to uh, live with a Sabbath rhythm and people that feel like we're freed from the Sabbath rhythm. How do we do this life together when the scripture doesn't speak to something directly and we have this open opportunity for us to do life, but our stuff just kind of runs into each other. And he walks the church through how we do life together. And then we got to last week's message where uh, if you see the walls, you'll see there's maps and photos on the walls. We took your Polaroid picture if you were here last week. Some of you were very angry with us for that. Uh, no apologies. I am not sorry. Um, but the idea behind the message was to uh, invite you into this posture that Paul has of having a holy ambition to serve the Lord? What does it look like for you with all of your experiences, with all of your uh, spiritual gifts, natural talents, who you are, your education, your resources, what God has made you, the whole package of who you are, when you consider that and say, if I could do anything to serve the Lord, if I could use my gifts and my resources and who I am to serve Jesus, well, this is how I'd want to do it. 
And that makes up our holy ambition, our desire to impact this world in a specific way. And we actually took your picture and had you write on there what your ambition was, what your dream was, if you had it, and then to pin it on the map in a location that corresponds to that particular dream. And it was a beautiful thing. We got to come, a few of us got to come here this week, read those, pray over those, and just see this this ambition that God is forming in us as as a church, and we love it. So now we get to chapter 16. And in chapter 16, uh, honestly, if you're reading through the Bible, a lot of times people will get to 16 and just kind of breeze through it. It's sort of like the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1. People are just like, do I have to read every name? And they just kind of move on to the next chapter as quickly as possible. And I have a very different perspective of Romans chapter 16. And I hope when we're done today, you will as well. So that's, we're going to spend time looking at these names that Paul mentions these personal greetings, these things that he shares with the Romans to wrap up this letter. I want to talk about why they're so significant. So if you have your Bibles, let's go Romans 16. We'll read verses 1 through 23. And just know if there's ever been a debate on how to pronounce some of these names, whatever I say is correct. So just kind of go with that, um, and we'll figure it out from there. All right, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centrae, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever way she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, that's Priscilla and Aquila from Acts, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house, Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. They're all about themselves. Greet those, just kidding. (laughs) Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphania and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, And the brothers who are with them, that's a great list if you're pregnant, by the way, if you're looking for names. Uh, (laughs) Greet Philologus. (laughs) Somebody please name their son Philologus. Um, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus, greet you. 
that is our text for today. Um, so we're just gonna we're gonna dive right in because I really do think it's very important to understand what Paul's doing when he writes out this list of names. The first thing that I, I want to mention about this is that Paul's making this personal. Paul is an apostle that is now being known around the world. He's, uh, he's been to so many places where Christianity has gone, and he, he's probably the closest thing to a Christian celebrity that would have existed, him and Peter, maybe John in that first century, and he's doing everything he can to burn that idea down. There is no such thing as a Christian celebrity. When it comes to, uh, to Christians, I know a lot of times we might know Christians from what they write, or maybe we watch them on YouTube, or we listen to their music, or things of that nature. Those are wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ who have a ministry, but the reality of who you are in Christ means that you belong face-to-face, eye-to-eye with them. They needed the exact same saving grace that you did, and they have received the exact same finished work of Christ that you have. And I just want, I want to say this because I, I believe one of the things that Paul is doing is removing the distance between him, who's a known commodity in the Christian world, and there was no social media, there was no media at all at this point. It was just word of mouth, it was reputation, but his reputation was starting to precede him. And here he goes and he highlights just the people in the life of the church, the local community, and what they're doing to serve the Lord. It's a beautiful thing, the way that he kind of tears down those walls and makes this personal. Now, this is Paul's biggest list of names. He has other places where he mentions people by name, Colossians 4, 2 Timothy at the end of that letter. He talks about a Philippians. He mentions a couple of names as well. He does this from time to time, but Romans is by far the biggest list. He mentions close to 30 different individuals by name or by their relationship to him. And in that list, he mentions seven to ten women. And we say seven to ten because there are a couple of names that could be either male or female. It's actually unknown to scholars if they were men or women. Eighteen to twenty men, same thing. A couple of them uh, were unknown. Two different families and one group of saints. Uh, The uh, scholar and commentary writer Frank Thielman says this, Many of those whom he greets, moreover, had names that were common among slaves, Freedmen and immigrants from the East, a number of those whom he commends most highly are women. So you have this picture of Paul in chapter 14, bringing people of varying convictions together and emphasizing the unity of the body of Christ. And here he emphasizes that and increases that by naming people from everywhere along the socioeconomic spectrum, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, and he's talking about the work that they're doing that's affecting the world for the kingdom of God. He's highlighting it. He's celebrating it. He's naming specific things that these people have done to contribute to the work that God's doing. He's not writing to the Romans and saying, look at all the stuff that I've done. He's writing to the Romans and saying, I see and have heard about what you do. This is a church that's probably in the neighborhood of 80 to 100 people, most likely meeting in house churches and maybe from time to time getting all together. But this group of people that exists in Rome, Paul's looking at them and he's saying, you are known. You're known to God. You're known to me. And he even talks about how their obedience has been known to all. And there's something about this. 
last week we talked about the marks of a healthy church, and this week I just I want to share the things that Paul highlights about individuals. And I say this not because we want to be known, or not because we want to have a, a reputation that, uh, that everybody knows about what we do for the Lord. But at the same time, there is an element of us that we might tend to bury the things that we do for the Lord and be happy to be known for things that really don't matter. Really good at fantasy football, straight A's all the time, uh, works out a ton and has a, you know, has a great figure. So my friend had a mug. He said, it's not, it's not a dad bod, it's a father figure. I just, that popped in my head. I thought I'd sh- share that joke. All right. There's, there's some of us that are just known for things that are just sort of out there in the world. And Paul wants to put on display what it means for us to be known for the work that we do for the Lord. And so he highlights specific things. I just want to point these out. He talks about people being a servant of the church, fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risk their necks for my life, the first convert to Christ in Asia, worked hard for you, talking to the Romans, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners, well known to the apostles, beloved in the Lord, fellow worker, beloved, approved in Christ, workers in the Lord, beloved who has worked hard in the Lord, who has been a mother to me as well. When you see this list of things that that Paul's highlighting about these people, there's so much about their faithfulness, their diligence, their willing to serve, putting themselves out there, making effort to encourage and build up the body of Christ. And Paul's naming these things and saying, you are known for being diligent and faithful and hardworking for the kingdom of God. As followers of Jesus, I do just want to encourage you. We don't do a ton of shoulds when it comes to you should, but there's an element of you should here. There's an element of as a a, a desire, a want, is to actually have these things that we do for the Lord be so important to us that people can't help but notice the things that we do, the hard work that we put in. Please hear me. We don't do things for the approval of men. Paul makes that very clear to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2. We do this for God's approval. We do this to honor God with our lives. We work hard as unto the Lord. Those are all things that Paul talks about in other places. But if our whole reputation is about being successful with things in the world that are trivial and nobody knows about the work that we put in for the Lord, there is an element of how Important is it really to us? There's something about the diligence with which we operate in this life that is going to make itself known and on display. And that's not something that you have to actively bury. We don't live with a false humility where we just put all that stuff away. We also don't live with the pride of trying to get approval of men. So finding that sweet spot of making our life enough about serving the Lord that people start to notice that God is a priority in our lives. That is a good and real thing, and that's what Paul's putting on display here. Now, a couple of things that I just want to point out about this list. Paul mentions Andronicus and Junia. He says, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, they are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Uh, We talk a lot about apostolic ministry here at the church. In fact, we use the word apostle uh, or apostolic often. 
And when those things come up, as it will later in the message today, I want to take the opportunity and just share a little bit about what we mean when we say that. Because for some people, the language of an apostle is like, okay, that was the 12. The 12, they get mentioned in the Gospels, they get mentioned in Revelation. Uh, they are you know, people that were very important to Jesus, and he sent them out, but the idea of an apostle no longer exists. And we just have a different perspective. Our understanding of the scriptures goes down a different path. Uh, Paul was a 13th apostle. He will not be one of the 12 apostles mentioned in Revelation. Uh, we see Barnabas operating as an apostle, Timothy operating as, as an apostle, Titus operating as an apostle. They apprenticed under Paul in apostolic ministry. And then we see Andronicus and Junia. Uh, it says well-known um, by the apostles. The translation is just as easily well-known among the apostles. And many people will make arguments that Andronicus and Junia were also serving as apostles. So here's why I want to make this clear. Uh, the word in Greek is apostolos. And when you take the Greek and put it into Latin, uh, which has been done for many hundreds of years, uh, the word apostolos is translated to missio. So when we talk about a missionary, we are saying an apostle. And I just want you to hear that. Sometimes we're like, yes, missionaries exist. No, apostles don't exist. They are linguistically the exact same thing. So you don't make that differentiation that there are missionaries, but there are not apostles. If there are missionaries, the idea is that they are sent ones. Now, I'm making this clear because last week we talked about this apostolic story that we're on. We are sent ones. We're missionaries. We're apostles. We're part of a story, an apostolic story that God has invited us into, and we want to embrace this picture of what it means for us to be here on purpose. You're here for a reason. You belong here. God has orchestrated your life now as a follower of Jesus to be here for the purpose of carrying out the name of Jesus and bringing it to your community and to the nations. We've talked about that at length. That was part of last week's message, part of the, the calling that we talked about last week. And we understand that to be part of the mission that every single follower of Jesus operates on. We are part of an apostolic community, an apostolic work. So I just want to make that abundantly clear. So what we have in Romans, what we have in Acts, is we see these generations of apostolic ministry continuing, and we believe that we are still walking in that today. Now, Paul goes on. And he starts to give a warning in verse 17. So he's talked to the church, and he said, you guys are doing some phenomenal work. And he'll even circle back to that and say that you're doing some phenomenal work. But he wants to give them a warning about something that might happen. And he says this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Okay, so Paul's made a, a point here that he wants the Romans to be on the lookout for two categories of people. Now, I'll be honest, when we think about major sins in the church, a lot of times our minds go to places like greed and corruption at a, a corporate or a leadership level, maybe to sexual immorality and the, uh, the, the impact that that can have or power and abuse and what happens in those spaces. And Paul could very easily have highlighted those things and said, watch out for these people that come in to do these things. But he actually is very tender for a different kind of problem in the church. And he names two categories. The first one is divisions. 
Uh, in Galatians 5, there's a, a great picture of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Great, great things that happen when we walk by the Spirit. There's another list called the deeds of the flesh. What happens when we uh, don't walk by the Spirit? The things that we tend to do, and, and it's full of all kinds of things, but there are three in there that deal with this category that Paul's getting at. He calls them dissensions, divisions, and rivalries. He actually warns that when we're not walking by the Spirit, one of the things that humans tend to do is to bring division. And Paul's telling this Roman church that's actually doing quite well to watch out for people that bring division. Now, sometimes people might bring division on purpose, but usually it's not that. The language that he's using here about division is talking about people who bring something up that forces people to choose a camp, choose a side. And he's saying, just watch out for people that are bringing things up that force you to choose a side. Now, he's not talking, again, about the Romans 1 through 8 stuff, the gospel foundation that he's laid. There is no room for discussion on those things. Those are close-handed gospel issues. We're now more back to the Romans 14 things, where there's room for discussion, and there's people that force you to choose a side. He says, watch out for those people. The second thing that he tells them to watch out for is people who create obstacles. Watch out for people that will say, if you want to come to Jesus, put your faith in him and... And then they add another category, a fill-in-the-blank. For the Galatians, he screamed at the Galatians because there were people that they led into the church that would say, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to uh, become a Jew first and then give your life to Jesus. You have to get circumcised, follow the laws of the Torah, maintain Sabbath rhythms, and obey Jesus. And Paul screams at them for adding something to the gospel. And these types of things happen from time to time where somebody might come in and say, if you want to follow Jesus, you put your faith in Jesus and you think this way, you act this way, you believe this thing, and it's this extra on top. And Paul keeps reducing the gospel down to this core aspect of faith in Jesus Christ alone is what saves. In Jesus Christ alone. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a sanctifying work that transforms our thinking. He already talked about that in 12.1. Your thinking will change, but not so that you can get saved. Your thinking changes actually because the Spirit comes into your life and transforms your way of thinking. You change the way that you think because you're a Christian, not so that you can become a Christian. And that's very important to Paul. Don't let anybody in this church that's going to put an obstacle in the way of people following Jesus. So he's very clear about those two things. That's his huge warning. And then he tells them that their motives are not for Jesus. They're not serving the Lord. They're serving their own appetite, right? This is something that they want, and they're bringing their flesh into the church. So watch out for that. Then he makes this statement in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And I just want to encourage us, sometimes as we, when we read the New Testament, there can be a little bit of discouragement when we see the word soon because it's been 2,000 years. Define soon, Paul. Like, I think there's just that little bit of like, what do you mean when you say soon? And I just want to say this. The Lord has not failed us, and he has not held off an inappropriate amount of time before he crushes Satan under our feet, as Paul promised he would. When the New Testament talks about things happening soon, they're talking about the imminence 
or the next step in redemptive history. This is the next thing that God is going to do is he's going to crush Satan under your feet. And so we live our lives full of faith that Jesus Christ is coming again and his coming is imminent. It will happen. That Jesus is going to crush Satan under our feet, that is going to happen and we can live with the confidence and the faith that those things are imminent. They will happen. And so it's important for us to understand that the New Testament writers were not off when they say soon. They are talking about this is the very next thing in redemptive history that's going to happen is Jesus Christ will come again and crush Satan under our feet. Okay, now we get to this third section. And for this third section, I actually want to take us to the book of Acts. We're going to start a series in Acts uh, in January, and I'm very excited about it. I love, love, love teaching the book of Acts. Uh, there's a church planting organization that uh, they, they grabbed what can only be considered the best name for a church planting organization. Don't know all that much about the organization itself, but I love their name. It's called Acts 29. And here's why I love that name. The book of Acts has 28 chapters. And for years, for generations, people have called the church today the 29th chapter of Acts. Because if you read through Acts, one of the things that you find is it doesn't end with a period. It ends with sort of an ellipsis, a dot, dot, dot. Like everything's still in motion. Everything's still happening. All the trajectories are being set. Everything's launching forward. The book of Acts is building. And it's like Luke was just like, okay, I'm going to wrap this up and send it to Theophilus and uh, keep going with Paul. Like it just, it gets sent off to press before any story finishes. And I believe that that's on purpose. Now, one of the things that the Holy Spirit was communicating to us by finishing Acts in an unfinished way is showing us that the church for generations now has picked up what was begun in Acts and we continue it each generation. So we don't look at what happened in the Bible and say, oh, that was then and this is now. We actually look what happens in the Bible and we say, this is our story and we're in it very much so to this day. Well, one of my favorite parts of Acts is in chapter 20. I'm actually going to have you turn there. And this is part of Romans 16, but I would like you to turn to Acts chapter 20. We're going to read six verses in Acts 20. Uh, This is Luke writing. And Luke says this. After the uproar ceased. So they had just been in Ephesus, where Ephesians was written to. And there's a big riot. And Paul and a few others got kicked out of town. After the uproar ceased... Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derbe, And Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now, this is a travel log of Paul, where Luke is just keeping us up to date on where he went. 
And much of Paul's missionary journeys were centered around the Mediterranean rim. So he would sail from port to port and maybe go inland a little bit and sometimes travel by land. But for the most part, he was back on a boat and he would work his way around the Mediterranean, even going to some of the islands and then landing back at Caesarea and working his way down to Jerusalem. Happened three different times where he goes on these loops around the Mediterranean preaching the gospel. And this is one of those loops where he's actually on his way back to Jerusalem and it's on this trip that he writes the letter to the Romans. It's on this trip that he writes the letter to the Romans. And one of the things that happens here, and I'll just point this out, is Paul had a bunch of stuff happen, and then Luke tells us, as Paul was getting on the boat, who gets on the boat with him. And this is a really important thing to understand about the story of the New Testament. A lot of times if we read through the book of Acts and we're not careful, we can think it's about Peter, 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 and then it switches, and then it's Paul, 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 and then it ends. And we think that the two people that the book of Acts is about are Peter and Paul. Maybe a little bit of John and James in there every once in a while. And that's, that's just missing the storyline. There are people that don't get mentioned at the same level or degree or volume as Paul and Peter that are critical to us understanding how the gospel advances. And Acts chapter 20 is one of those. So Luke tells us about these people that get on the boat. So Peter, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus. Now, as we look at those names and we look back at Romans chapter 16, we actually see some of those names surface again. So in Romans 16, Paul writes this. He says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, or Sopater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Paul's telling the Roman church about who he's got with him. Luke makes a point to tell everybody who gets on the boat with Paul. And this is really important for a very specific reason. Paul's ministry has always been about pouring into the next generation of leaders, of servants of the church, of people that will take this gospel and run with it. It's what he commits himself to. He tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will teach others also. There's this desire in Paul that the things that he carries are not just for him to carry, but that people are a part of that as well, and they are commissioned into the work of advancing the gospel. Now, this happens in a number of ways. Not everybody does the same kind of ministry that Paul does, where they bounce around from city to city. Paul will take Timothy on a journey. Now, it's believed in Acts 20 that Timothy was roughly 16 years old when he jumped on the boat with Paul. Well, what happens is they get on that boat, and they go down to Miletus. There's a beach at Miletus, and they call the Ephesian elders. So they had just gotten kicked out of Ephesus. They go to Miletus. Are you tracking? And they call the Ephesian elders to come and meet them on the beach at Miletus. And there at that beach, you've got Paul, you've got Sopater, you've got Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus and Luke. 
And they're all hanging on the beach. And Acts 20, a little bit later, will tell us that Paul gives instruction to the Ephesian elders. He tells them to watch out for fierce wolves that will arise among you. He gives them core instructions. He tells them, I never shied away from sharing the whole counsel of God. He tells them to care for the flock that the Holy Spirit's entrusted to them because Jesus bought them with his own blood. He tells them all of this stuff on the beach at Miletus, and then they get down on their knees, and they pray, and they weep together because they know they're never going to see each other again. And I just picture Timothy watching all of this happen because just a little bit later in Timothy's life, Paul's going to tell him, I need you to go to Ephesus, and I need you to take on that church and lead it. And First and Second Timothy are written in the context of Timothy leading the Ephesian church. He was with Paul as Paul commissioned those elders. He was on the beach with him as they did this ministry together and linked arms and wept. And then Timothy goes on with him and they go down to Caesarea and they meet up with a prophet named Agabus at Philip's house who had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. You think Timothy was interested? We don't know, but... TBD. And they're all there together, and these prophets come together, and Agabus tells all of them that, hey, when Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be bound up in chains. And everybody there's like, then don't go to Jerusalem. And Paul's like, no, that's the plan. And he goes to Jerusalem, and he's arrested, and it's his arrest that actually gets him back to Rome. And Aristarchus is arrested with him. We don't see a ton about that, but to the Colossians, he tells them that Aristarchus is my fellow prisoner. They both got arrested, and he's part of this traveling companion group. But Timothy did not get arrested. Timothy was sent back to Ephesus. I love this stuff because it shows us that the kingdom of God, while it's big, it's also small enough that it requires you and me to get on the boat. See, sometimes we might think of, I mean, we're in a pretty small context here, but you might look at what I'm doing and say, okay, well, Matt, Matt leads this church. He preaches in other places. He and Kristen are always doing work in different churches. That's not my story. That's not my life. And you kind of just distance yourself from it. It's like, that's what they do. And I just live my own quiet life and do my own thing. And this is just our community. I would encourage you to begin to think very differently about your own life and your own story. See, right now, I, today, there are two billion people at least on this planet that have never heard the name of Jesus, ever. They haven't had a chance to decide what they believe about Jesus because they've literally never heard the name Jesus uttered. That's missiologist estimates of how many people on this planet, even with social media, even with all the things that we have access to, never heard the name of Jesus. Two billion minimum. So if you say, well, the, the mission of God is for other people, it's not for me, you're wrong. When Jesus was faced with the issue of a harvest that's plentiful. His response was, pray for laborers to enter the harvest because there are few workers. His heart was for workers to rise up and say yes to being invited into the story of taking the name of Jesus to the nations. 
When Jesus was telling the disciples things in those last moments, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Why? Why would you receive power? To be my witnesses. To bear witness to the reality of Jesus, the Son of God. And Romans 16 puts two things on display. It puts the local and the translocal on display. Translocal is just a phrase that we would use to describe people whose ministry goes from place to place or is not set and established in a local location. Paul writes in the first 16 chapters of Romans 16 about people who are engaged in local ministry, serving the Roman church, working hard, being diligent, and that reputation is actually making its way out beyond the church and affecting believers around the known world. He says the same things to the Thessalonians. (laughs) He says the same thing. He says your faith is sounding forth throughout all Macedonia and Achaia. So that I don't even need to say a word. People already know that God is here. Paul loves the local church. But he also understands there's this mission that just keeps rolling forward. This apostolic work. Again, same word. This apostolic work that just keeps going out. At no point in Acts, in Acts chapter 20, do we, or even any part of Acts, do we get this understanding that Paul said, all right, Secundus, you're coming with me. Gaius, get on the boat. I want Timothy. He might have said, Timothy, come with me. But uh, the, the other guys, Trophimus, Tychicus, he doesn't, we don't see him like specifically recruiting. What we see is Luke telling us Paul was going to these places and these guys jumped on the boat. And that's, I actually teach this message to other churches when I get a chance or some of our gatherings when I get a chance. I just call it get on the boat. Because there's something about the story of God where we say yes to what God's doing and we start to move in the direction of the things that God is doing and we don't know where he's going to use us next. Tychicus ends up delivering letters for Paul. There's a moment where Paul has to go one direction, but he wants to be in two places at once, so he sends Tychicus on his behalf. He talks about Gaius, who was host to me and to the whole church. Gaius opened up his home. We crashed there. We stayed there. We did ministry from that place, and the church meets there. This is a guy that used his physical home to base the church and to be a blessing to the mission of God. He talks about Secundus in a couple of places being a traveling companion, and he talks about Aristarchus being a fellow prisoner. They wanted Paul. If you read through the book of Acts, they wanted to arrest Paul. Now, I have this, this is not biblical. I have this picture in my head of Aristarchus being like, hey, if you're going to arrest him, arrest me too. Arrested. Meaning, imprisoned by the Romans, Aristarchus joined Paul in prison. You just, you see this work of God as people are moving from place to place and then their life goes different directions than they ever anticipated. You don't need to say yes to this or do anything out loud, but have you ever had those moments where maybe you said yes in a couple of small places and then the Lord opened up a door that you never thought would be opened to serve him in a different way? 
happens when we say yes to the Lord is he keeps using us. Because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So when we open ourselves up and say, here am I, send me, guess what he does? He sends us. He uses us. So I want to finish with just a couple of practical things about getting on the boat. Just some things to kind of process through and to think about what you can say yes to today that will prepare you for the future tomorrow. And the first is to start local. Start serving. Start saying yes to things in the local context. Even if you have ambition or dreams about being in other places around the world, one of the great things that you can do today is start serving the Lord here. Say yes to the doors that he opens. Faith give you an opportunity to share your life story in a work context, and you get a chance to actually share how Jesus has affected your life, say yes to those opportunities because the Lord has presented them to you. If you get a chance with your friends to to walk them into the kingdom of God and they're curious about who you are and why you live the way that you live and why God is so important to you and you get to pray with them to receive Jesus, say yes to those opportunities. Say yes to the local. If you get a chance to be here, everything that we talked about last week, to be here, to serve the Lord in your church, to work hard and be diligent in your local church. Say yes and serve the Lord. That's the first thing, is to start local. The second thing, Let's do this. Let's, we'll go to the list, Rick, if that's all right. There's a lot more things, and I'm not going to say second and all that. All right, so here's some things, very practical, not biblical, just my advice that you can do to get ready to get on the boat. First thing is get your passport. Uh, it takes a few months, $165, and, uh, you know, can be an obnoxious thing, but there's those moments, oh, yeah, a few months, $165, and a really terrible line at the post office. So that, those are the things that are, it takes to get a passport. But one of the things that can happen is we get an opportunity to get on the boat, which we'll just talk about a little bit more, where maybe we are invited into a story, a translocal story, an opportunity to go be a blessing somewhere else, and we want to say yes, but we don't have the things in place yet. Sometimes those opportunities literally pass us by, like the date literally passes us by because we weren't ready one of my encouragements is just be ready. You don't know if God's going to open up a door. This is one of those things that you can do that will create space for you to get outside of your local context. Have a passport ready to go. Second thing, start saving for your own participation. 10 bucks a month, 15 bucks a month, whatever that might be. Anna, can I tell a little bit of your story? Okay, okay, thanks. Uh, So Anna had a heart to go to Thailand. And it was going to cost X number of thousands of dollars to be on this trip to go and serve uh, the kids that were serving there. And she wanted to be a part of this. Money was going to be a huge issue. And she was praying about it. And she realized that she had this giant bucket of tips that she's been saving for six years of working in food service. And she went and just started counting that money. And it totaled up to $90 short of the entire cost of the trip. And in that, she got a chance, and then somebody paid for the last 90. She was able to get fully funded for this trip. And it was one of those moments just to see how when you are diligent to save for those opportunities that she didn't know six years ago that if I save my tips, when I get six years down the road, I'll be able to go to Thailand. But she did the work of diligently socking away those resources. And for when the Lord said, I have something for you, she was able to say yes without the limitations, yes. 
So you start saving for your own participation. Third thing is to start saving for other people's participation. Okay, have money set aside so then the, when the people in your life say, hey, I feel like I've got something that the Lord's asking me to do and I want to go and serve him in this way and it's going to cost this much money to get there, you have a chance to say, I want to help. I have money for this very thing and here it is and I want to send you and I want to bless this and I want to pray for you and start saving money for those things because the people in your life, sometimes they might get opportunities before you do and you get a chance to be a part of their support structure and their team. And that's a big part of what Paul talks to the Philippians about. They had money that they gave Paul that enabled him to do work that he would not have been able to do without their help and he tells them, thank you. It's a huge thing. Fourth Host the SoCal Collective Friends. So we are hosting, we've shared with you guys, the SoCal Collective here in October. It's three days, people coming from San Diego, L.A., Durban, uh, South Africa, Dubai, uh, the U.K. We've got people coming in from different places, and they will be here. One of the great things that happens when we host people in our homes is we get just a chance to interact with them and hear their story, and our faith is built by their faith. It's a chance for us to just have people in our home and see their faces and know God is at work in a big way. We're bringing people in, and it's a privilege that Anthem Thousand Oaks gets to be able to host people because they happen to want to be in our town and be a part of our gathering, and you get a chance to be a part of their story and even be a blessing to them as God might be equipping them. Maybe he's not sending you out in this moment, but he's sending them out, and you get a chance to be a gift and a blessing to them. The next one is be a part of our global collective. Uh, so next July, the 3rd through the 7th, um, our Genesis Collective group is getting churches, not just the leadership teams, but anybody from any church that is a part of our story that wants to join us. We're going to be meeting in Albania on a beach. Uh, we're going to be getting together for, I think that's five days to worship. There will be teaching, uh, breakouts, pool time, volleyball, time to be a community together. It will be people from the U.S., people from the U.K., Sri Lanka, India, Nepal, uh, South Africa. We're bringing together our people from all of these different nations that we work with. And our dream, our dream is to worship in this multicultural, multi-ethnic. Uh, most of the people speak English that we're involved with, but you'll get a chance to meet people from literally all over the world and to worship together with them. Uh, we're patterning this after our friend uh, Terry Virgo led New Frontiers International for years, and they would do this with their, with their group of people. Every year, they would just find a giant lawn in the UK, and they would camp out tents and all of that, and, uh, and they would do their week every single year where their whole movement would gather, and it was part of seeing this global body of Christ that spawned church plant after church plant and mission after mission and person going after person going, and we dream about that. So start saving up, get your PTO ready, and get yourself to a place where you can join us. We would love to have you be a part of that story with us. Uh, so that's happening in July, and that's a chance. Again, we don't know what story God's going to write with simply saying yes to a moment like that where you get to be with and meet other parts of the world, other people from other parts of the world. All right, next one. I don't know what number I'm at. Uh, buy a coffee for people serving Jesus in a compelling way. Uh, this is something that, honestly, Kristen and I have done over the course of our, our life and into our ministry life, is if we see people whose life we um, aspire to or are intrigued by or compelled by, we'll just ask them out to dinner, out to a coffee, bring our journals, and ask a thousand questions. 
This is one of those things for you that's just like, how do I start to shape my life in a direction that says yes to the things God might be putting in front of me? I ask people that are already saying yes to the things that God's putting in front of them, and I learn, and I glean, and I write those things down and take as much away from that as I can. Anytime there's an interest meeting or a prayer meeting around any apostolic work, even if you can't go, Rob hosted our Thailand one probably three months ago, uh, things like that, when they come up, Go. Even if you can't be on the team, you could be a part of the financial structure of the trip, you could be a part of the prayer structure of the trip, or you could end up on the team. But anytime we see those things, again, these are just practices of what it would look like to get on the boat. You be a part of those things. When we're stepping into apostolic work, you say, how can I help? Maybe you're not going, but you say, how can I help? And lastly, start a journal. And you may have a regular journal for prayer and things of that nature. This is a separate journal just to write down any time the Lord gives you opportunities in your daily life to preach the gospel, to share your testimony, to open your mouth for the kingdom of God, to open your home, to welcome people in, any of those gospel opportunities, just start writing them down. Write down your experience, write down your reflections, and then the next time one comes up, write down your experience and your reflections. I believe what you'll see from this is an encouragement of how God takes us from moments and turns in a life of serving him out of each of those yeses that we make. I love, I'm not going to teach the whole book of Acts today, but I love uh, how Barnabas starts his journey with generosity and ends up functioning as an apostle for years to come. It starts with him hearing the gospel and receiving it and selling his property and bringing all the proceeds to the apostles' feet and saying, here, I want to bless the church. He starts with generosity, and then it just goes into a yes after a yes after a yes. He was first on the ground in Antioch when the church was exploding, when the gospel was taking root in Antioch. Barnabas got to be the first one there to see what was happening. I love, I love when we say yes to getting on the boat. I can't wait to teach Acts where you get the whole run of this, but I love teaching Romans 16 because it just shows us, yes, this is a big world and God is a big God, but he actually has you in mind as the laborers that are going to rise up for the harvest. And he wants to stir you to serve locally, to serve globally, to be a part of the story in some diligent, hardworking, faithful way. Kristen, do you remember 1 Corinthians 15, 58 off the top of your head? I don't have it. All right, Paul finishes off his... <laughs> there you go, good job. That was that Erica Kristen Tandem. All right, therefore, my beloved brother... Great, Rick, just on the buttons. Um, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know or knowing that your labor is not in vain. It's not empty to work hard for the Lord. We say yes, and we serve the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to serve you together, to be your church family, to, um, to love you and be loved by you, and for that to compel us to love this world enough to tell them about you. Lord, I pray that you would stir us up. Thank you for Romans 15 and 16 and the stirring that's taking place. And I pray your grace on us as we say yes and uh, Lord, I pray for some very fun boat stories that people will uh, be a part of this apostolic adventure, this journey that you have us on, and when they get to share the wonderful grace of God at work 
here and around the world. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in your name. Amen.